Amen. Go ahead and make yourself comfortable and grab a seat. It's good to see you. Thank you, Charlie. Welcome to Legacy Church. If you're a guest, it's good to have you here. If I've not met you yet, I look forward to meeting you after the service. Um, hey, if you have a Bible or whatever device you like to use to read the Bible, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 5 today. Ecclesiastes 5 is going to be helpful. And while you're turning there, just a couple of real quick announcements. One is that, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, we are adding our four to six class to our kids' community. So now we have um, kids' community up to the age of six. So if you have kids uh, and you want to check them in, what I want to remind you is that you want to pick them up before we have worship at the end of the service. It's not like the nursery or up to four where they're back there even through the worship segment, if you choose. Um, But four to six, we're asking that you pick your kids up. Um, That way they could be in here and be a part of our worship service. And then the other announcement is more of just kind of a save the date. That's October 18th. That's three weeks from now. I want you to write that number down. I want you to put it in your phone. That is Legacy's ninth birthday. So every October we have our big birthday bash. Um, We've never missed a year. We're not going to miss this year, even with COVID. So we're going to have it where we normally have it at the KCAB, but we're going to change it up a little bit. We're not going to mess around with the chili cook-off because that's too awesome. So we're going to have the chili cook-off with all the COVID precautions, but we're going to have the chili cook-off. We're we're really hoping to get over 20 chilies there this year. It's going to be a blast. It's a lot of fun. We do it every year, lots of prizes. Um, But also, in addition to that, we're going to have our field day. Now, I was on sabbatical last year, and I wasn't a part of the field day, but I heard nothing but great things about it. It was in July. So what we're going to do is we're going to combine the two events a little bit, and we're going to have a field day before the chili cook-off, okay? So it's all going to be at the same place. We will give details on this in the next two weeks. What I really want you to do today, though, is just put it on your calendar. Don't miss it. October 18th, three weeks from now. It's going to be on a Sunday, early afternoon, early evening, or late afternoon, early evening, And it's going to be a blast. Those are always a lot of fun. So Ecclesiastes 5 is going to be where we're at today. And uh, listen, we're going to finish chapter 5 and we're going to mow right through chapter 6. It's actually going to be the biggest passage that we tackle in this series that we've been in called Life Under the Sun, which is our work through the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's because it's all dealing with the same topic. And I want to handle the text correctly, so we're going to handle it as it stands, as one big unit. Because the big idea is how you and I are always dissatisfied. Dissatisfied with the things of this world. People sing about it. There's movies made on it all the time. Back in 1965, Mick Jagger had the song called Satisfaction or I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Depends on who you you ask. It was a big song, and and he talks about how he was unable to find satisfaction on this globe in two things, women and commercialism, oddly enough. So that was his song, and he was so frustrated about it, you could hear it in how he sang it. It's known for being half sung and half yelled. That's how frustrated he was with this. And everyone loves the song because we all understand that frustration. We all are born dissatisfied, particularly when it comes to wealth power, and opportunity. We are perpetually dissatisfied. See, this is the problem you and I run into. God gives us good things, right? And yet we struggle 
to enjoy those good things. Because mingled in the good things that we have is always the hope that we would have a little bit more or a little bit better. Every one of us wants a little bit more, don't we? A little bit more money, more time, a little bit newer, a little bit more square footage, a little bit better operating system, a little bit better looking, a little bit better gas mileage, just a little bit more. It's hard to enjoy what you have when something better is right across the street. And if you doubt that this is even a struggle, let me just be honest with yourself. Has your current treasure and opportunity and power, has it given you the utmost pinnacle meaning in your world? Probably not. You want to know why? Because you need a little bit more. (laughs) You want a little bit more. You came from the womb like this, by the way. As my parents would say, we came by this honestly. In the garden, if you read the story of the garden, it goes all the way back to that main idea of a perfect man and a perfect woman in a perfect garden before a perfect God with perfect creation around them. And yet, mankind still said, I need a little bit more, even surrounded by perfection. In fact, not only do we need a little bit more, God is in the way. He's oppressing us because we don't have better than what we have. This is part of the original sin where we have good things. And yet at the same time, we feel like we're being held back from having better things. It's the belief that God is maybe not so good after all. Maybe he's oppressive. Maybe he's holding us back. I mean, think about the fact that today we have provision. But sometimes when we have provision, isn't it hard to just not see that we also have lack because of what the provision looks like in front of us? We have good things, and yet all we can see is that we don't have the better things that we had hoped for. This is life under the sun, this repeated phrase that's been in our series. It's all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a life grasping for pinnacle meaning in this world under this blazing sun. It's life lived as if God is absent, doesn't exist, and we can't find ultimate meaning in him, so we have to siphon it from any piece of the world that we can find laying around. You see, if you've been with us as we walk through this book of Ecclesiastes, you've learned that it's forcing us to become very honest with ourselves. It's a book that does that. forces us to really confront who we are. It demands honesty. This passage is about wealth today, but not really just about wealth. It's about much more than that. It's about how dissatisfied we are in our inability, our handicap, to really enjoy good things today. The reason I'm telling you it's more than just about wealth is because typically in the church, whenever we come across a passage that is dealing with money or treasure or wealth, people will shut it off and they will disconnect if they feel like they are not wealthy. This is how we do it. We read the Bible as if passages on money are really warnings to the wealthy. Don't do that. This passage has more gravity, in my opinion, for those of us who would never consider ourselves wealthy. In fact, the wealthy... Although they struggle with money and treasure and power in different ways, they might be some of the first to tell you that you're never going to find deep satisfaction in this thing called treasure and power because they're ahead of you. And they still, just like you, think a little bit more would get the trick done. See, here's what I mean. I had a job when I was 15 years old, and it paid me $4.25 an hour. That was the minimum wage back then. I know it sounds like it was 1950. It was not. But $4.25. And I remember getting my first paycheck. 
picking it up at work. All of us were picking up our paychecks at work and ripping open the, uh, the envelopes. And I had done the math in my head as to how much I should have gotten paid. And this is how I did it, right? Because I'm super smart. I multiplied four 25 with how many hours I worked. And then I slightly rounded down for this mysterious thing I heard about called taxes, right? Like this monster that takes just a little bit, just this little share out of your paycheck. When I saw, when I saw the paycheck, I realized taxes are no joke, right? You don't just round down. It's a totally different formula altogether. And as I'm looking with this disgust on my face, all of the, the ancient minimum wagers, people who'd gotten many of those checks before, kind of looked at me with joy, with this humor, because of how disgusted I was. And they were like, huh? How you like that? Taxes are pretty awesome, aren't they? Man. And you know what I thought? If I just had a little bit more, a little bit more than 425, I'd be in a better place right now. I'd be able to get a better car stereo for my hatchback. I mean, if I just had a little bit more. A few years later, they raised it to 475, right? And you know what I, what, I, what I realized? I needed a little bit more. I was still dissatisfied. A few years after that, I got a really good job. Man, it paid me $9 and change, which was really good for the 90s. I mean, I made almost twice as much as all of my friends did and still not satisfied. If you hop in your car, drive to New York, and find someone that's living on minimum wage, they're making around or more than $15 an hour, ask them if they are satisfied with that wage. And you know what they will tell you? A little bit more would be nice. A little bit more would be better. It would satisfy me. Here's why. Our appetite always demands more. It's our appetite. It always wants more. If you find yourself saying, I am not satisfied with what I have, you need to know that is not a wealth issue that goes away when you have more of it. It will follow you your entire life. Talked about this in August when we were moving through this passage in the earlier part of August and we hit money from a different angle on how John D. Rockefeller was the wealthiest, still today is the wealthiest American who has ever lived. Right? In fact, he is worth at his pinnacle twice what Jeff Bezos is today. That's how much money he had. And when a reporter asked him how much money is enough, his answer was a little bit more. A little bit more. Tell you what, Solomon, he's a contemporary man, is he not? The writer of our book of Ecclesiastes. This is almost 3,000 years old. It could have been written 30 minutes ago. He's a contemporary man for you and for me. People sing about this dissatisfaction. We write about it, make movies on it. Chris Jansen is a country music star. Allegedly, I wouldn't know, but apparently he's pretty good, and he wrote this song that I have heard just kind of blasted from stereos. I think that's when you know that a country song is real big, is when people that don't listen to country know some of the lyrics, right? And this was one song called Buy Me a Boat. And already, some of you already know the lyrics. Here's some of them. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it could buy me a boat. It could buy me a truck to pull it. It could buy me a Yeti 110 iced down with some silver bullets. This is hilarious to me. A Yeti 110 is a $500 ice chest, and he figures out a way to pick the cheapest beer in the world to put inside of this expensive ice chest. He needed to flip it. He says, yeah, and I know what they say. Money can't buy everything, well, maybe so, but it could buy me a boat. Yeah, and he's right. Chris is right. And you'd enjoy it momentarily. 
eventually that boat will get old and the boat next to you will be nicer and you will think just a little bit more, a little bit better, a little bit faster. You see, Christ has some strong words for Rockefeller and Jansen and McJagger and Solomon. He says this, stay where you're at. He says this in Luke 12, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, which means greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Christ himself is saying your satisfaction is not going to rest in how much you have. So guard your heart from saying, I just need a little bit more. Just a little bit more would get the job done. Let's hear how he handles this. This is Ecclesiastes 5. We're going to start where we left off last week, and this is going to be in verse 8. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit, find the main idea, and then move through it. This is the word of the Lord for us. It's going to be very helpful for us not to just see truth in this and how it applies for you and me, but it's going to be easier for us to see Christ in this passage, which is very important. Verse 8, he says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Okay. This is what he's saying. We'll just pause it for a second. He's saying, anytime you see exploitation and oppression, here's one thing you can also expect to find. Money and power. Money and power. Don't be shocked whenever you see exploitation running downhill, trickling downhill. Sure, you have an oppressor. We see oppressors. Those oppressors have oppressors above them, and they have oppressors above them. But the point is, is even then, it's better than no officials at all. That's what he's saying. And there is exploitation today because someone, somewhere, in some room is saying just a little bit more. Listen, we are 37 days from our ballots being counted, right? You will either have a new president or you will have the president you currently have. We don't know, but what we do know is that the venom between people is getting deadlier every single day we get closer to November 3rd. That we know, right? Why? Because people are nervous. People are anxious, angsty, that the wrong people are going to be elected. The wrong people are going to be sitting in positions of power, and those wrong people are going to hire and appoint other wrong people who are going to appoint laws wrongly that are going to be wrong for you and wrong for me. That's, that's what you're frustrated about. That's what you're scared and angry about might describe why it's becoming more difficult to look at the news. Let me just encourage you a little bit. Do not vote through a lens of anxiety and panic. Don't do that. It's not necessary. Vote through the filter of your values and your convictions as you see the Bible speaking into those. You have all the freedom to do that, right? And just let God do as he sees fit. Because God's not angsty. He's not nervous. God is not all wound up about what's going to happen with the ballots. He's not. He holds the hearts of kings in his hands. He also says this in Psalm 2. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves 
And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, which means mockery. Right? Some of you, you have no intentions of voting this year. Maybe because you feel like it's not going to count, so why even bother? Maybe it's because you don't understand the platforms. You just see characters. And you see one guy you don't like and another guy you don't like. And so you don't understand and you don't know who to trust, so you're just out. Right? And if I could just be honest with you for a moment, it's not a sin to not vote. I know social media will make you feel like it is. It's not. It's not a sin against God to not vote. You're just as free to sit at home if you want. But you are also free to invest in the future from an unanxious posture for the welfare of our nation. You're also free to do that, right? This is how God says it in Jeremiah 29. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare, right? By the way, if you go on the front page of our website and scroll all the way to the bottom, you will find a blog posting, which is really a link tree, um, on the different platforms. And then the Gospel Coalition wrote a summary of each of the platforms, Republican, Democratic, and Libertarian. Feel free to go and peruse it if you don't know what the issues are, right? Feel free to go on there and look. It's very, very objective, I felt like, as I went through them. Let that be a tool and a resource to you. But can I be honest again for a moment? It's not going to matter who wins because oppression and violations of justice are still going to happen. doesn't matter who takes the office. If your hope is that there will be no more exploitation and no more injustice, there will always be exploitation and injustice because this is life under the sun. Broken people building broken systems with broken motives trying to rule. Your next president, whoever he is, is not going to cure your bitter disappointment. Just like you're not one promotion away from finding ultimate satisfaction on this earth, you're not one president away from finding ultimate satisfaction on this earth. You're not. What our nation needs is the church to repent and cry out to God. What the, what the nation needs is for Christ to be made famous and elevated from every neighborhood and every language and every moment that makes sense. But the nation needs to see, see the church enjoy Jesus and therefore glorify God. That's what our nation needs. What the nation needs is for the church to point to a kingdom led by a king. A kingdom with no injustice, no exploitation, no oppression, no opposition. That's what our nation needs. In a few moments when we're finished with the sermon, we're going to pray with this posture just for a moment over our nation and pray a prayer of repentance even over us as a church, us as individuals, us as a corporate church, a national church. But let's move on, move through this. Go ahead and look down at verse 10, same chapter. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity or futility. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
There is a grievous evil. I'm going to want you to remember that phrase. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. This is what he's saying. Big point, right? Wealth is fickle. Don't lean on it with all of your weight. It's not the crutch you want to put everything into. It will leave you bitterly disappointed because it can just come and it can go. And not only affect the rest of your life, but even generations that come after you. It's not something to put all of your trust in, is what he's saying. Look at verse 18. He goes on. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. He's basically saying what you have right now, this lot that God has given you, it's the best that you can hope for. Whatever you have right now as you toil, as you work, it's the best you can hope for. Verse 1 of chapter 6, he goes on. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. Let's walk through that just for a second because there's some powerful words in there. What he's saying is the bitter disappointment that comes with not enjoying the good things around you, he's saying that that is worse than non-existence. Worse. You see, in the Hebrew culture, an evidence of God's blessing is long life, lots of kids. That's how you know that you made it. That's how you know God is smiling upon you. You live a long life, have a lot of babies making babies. And what he is saying is that it's better to have been born dead than to have the highest of blessings and an inability to even enjoy them. Does that seem kind of strong to you, though? I mean, when I read it, it seems a little bit strong for me. And that's because he meant it to be this way. He wants this to be sobering for you and me. Listen, some of you have had miscarriages, a stillbirth even, and know they're not the same thing, but they produce the same result. Some of you have had this. Most of us, if not all of us, know somebody who has. You've seen the sadness. 
He wants you to feel the weight, not just read the words. To feel the weight. Why the sobriety, though? Why do this to a passage like that? It's because it's too easy for you and me to read something like this and say, yeah, yeah, listen, got it, got it already. Money's not everything. It's not going to give me everything that I ever needed in this world. But it'll get me a boat. It'll get me close. And then all I'll need is a little bit more. Then I will need just a little bit more. And he actually anticipates our heart doing this. And that's why he says, listen, forget the long life. Pretend that you're alive, hypothetically, for 2,000 years. It's a thousand years twice over, he says. Then you've got tons of kids making kids who are making kids who are making kids. He says, even then, if you can't enjoy any of it, you might as well be stillborn. Here's the reason. It's better for the dead child is because that baby did not suffer through the frustrating pain and the maddening futility and the injustice and the meaninglessness of this Horrible life under a blazing sun. The baby knows rest far more than anyone who has been given life and can't figure it out. Been given good things but doesn't know what to do with it. This little baby is in a better place with more rest for the soul than can ever be discovered here. And there's my theology on miscarriages too. As a matter of fact, it's a different sermon, but... Let's go on to see what he says in verse 7. He goes on, he says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be already has been named, and it is known what man is. And he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Listen, if you get to this point in the the book or even this chapter, you're probably feeling in you the same thing I feel Whenever I get to a place like this, I think, enough already. It's just bleakness getting bleaker. I get it. It's depressing. This is his main lament. God gives wealth, power, and opportunity, and yet under the sun, we're not able to make any sense of it. We can't enjoy it. Not ultimately. And he uses this phrase three times. Grievous evil, right? Grievous evil. Anytime you see a phrase like this, by the way, repeated several times within a small chunk of scripture, that is noteworthy. It's okay to go in and kind of needle that out and look to see what that really means because the author is saying it quite a bit. And when you look at the Hebrew behind that word, it renders out miserable sickness, malignant disease. It's a horrible disease. It's a horrible handicap. It's a, it's a malignancy that we would have things around us to enjoy and not be able to enjoy any of them. And I know some of you are disagreeing with me right now. I get that. Booing me in your heart. Totally disagree. You look at your life and you think you've got everything you need. Luke, I've got the perfect job. 
I mean, I love my job because I got a great boss and he gets me, right? And you got a great pay structure and you're just, you're getting promotions and, and everything's working out and I love my job. I feel like total satisfaction is possible. I think total satisfaction is right around the corner. Would you just have the courage to look at your life and see if maybe you're not just distracted? Being very dishonest with yourself, but mostly distracted. My gym has this thing called a cardio theater. It's pretty funny. It's not new. I get it. Lots of gyms have them. In the old days, you'd have just equipment and then a bunch of TVs on random channels with no sound, right? And it was supposed to keep you distracted. Now they just shove all that equipment in a theater. (laughs) So when you walk in, the lights are really dark, gigantic screen, and it's the sea of cardio equipment, right? Here's the idea. By having something distract you on a screen or even entertain you, you forget for a moment that you're not going anywhere, right? You could actually just be still. You could run your little heart out. You can stair step away. You can, you can go elliptical crazy, and you're just not going anywhere. You hop off just like you hopped on. That's the whole idea. I actually love it, right? Because, I mean, here's, if, you, if, you, if you shove the same piece of equipment in a room with nothing but white walls, that's insanity, That's insanity with nothing to distract you, with just the monotony of what's going on. Listen, I saw Point Break the other day while I was on a treadmill. Kind of nice. Not the old one, the new one. Not that it was any better. (laughs) I think they're both not that great. But it was there. A month ago, I got to see Rocky IV. Such an awesome movie. I just stayed in there until the whole movie was done, right? Stayed in there the whole time. Just went from machine to machine because it's such a great movie. It's awesome. But this is how it is. This is what we do. We distract ourselves a thousand different ways so we're not faced with the brutal reality that we are not going anywhere in our pursuits to get ultimate satisfaction in this world. That's what Ecclesiastes is really saying as a whole. It's saying you're on a treadmill of futility, friend. You're not going anywhere. A little bit more is not going to satisfy the appetite you have. In fact, a little bit more is just going to have you stopping for a second to realize that you really need a little bit more. And then when you get that little bit more, you look across the street and you see what your neighbor just bought and you think, I just need a little bit more. And I need a little bit more. The reason you have not found utmost purpose and meaning in wealth is not because you don't have enough. It's because wealth is never going to deliver that to you. It's never going to give it to you. It wasn't meant to. You can boo this. We can revolt. You can disagree. But you can't change what I'm saying. Because God in the cosmos has established this as law. This has been decreed. He has made it so. He has ruined you from finding any ultimate satisfaction in this world. It's impossible for you. This was God's loving move as well, by the way. God has made the human heart disappointed with wealth as a God. God has made the human heart disappointed with anything else as a savior besides him. And we can't change this. As he said in the last chapter, we're on earth and he is in heaven. Right? And because we can't deal with this pain of reality, we distract ourselves as we are on this treadmill of futility. Listen, this whole book is bleak. It's bleak. I mean, even if you love the Bible, right? And you went to seminary or something impressive like that, you probably have never read this far into Ecclesiastes on your own, right? You probably got halfway through chapter 3 when he was done talking about time, doing what time does, and you thought, oh my gosh, this guy, he just drones on and on, and everything's futile, and I don't even know, I'm just going to go read about Jesus. And you flip it over to the New Testament, and you read about Jesus, right? That's what we mostly do. 
And you'd be correct in feeling that because this book of Ecclesiastes has zero answers for you. Lots of questions, no answers. You're not meant to find any here. It's meant to drive you towards this ultimate answer. That's the whole idea of it. This miserable sickness where he says grievous evil, it follows mankind to the grave. We were granted this disease of dissatisfaction and this life under the sun because of our first Adam and what he did in the garden. But the good news for you, good news for me, is we have a second Adam. Second Adam in Christ who came to take this grievous evil, this malignant disease, this miserable sickness, and wear it on himself as he hangs on the cross. That's what he does. This is how Paul says it to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for as by a man, first Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, the second Adam, shall all be made alive. You see, when Jesus came, it was to obey where Adam could not. That's why we say second Adam, to obey where Adam could not. But it was also to make a way. There's a fascinating little piece of scripture in Genesis you might not pay much attention to. I'm just going to read one verse. It's in Genesis 3, and this is after God kicks them out of the garden. It says this, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, that's a fascinating little passage. So not only were they pushed out of the garden, they were not allowed re-entry to get to this tree that drops fruit this tree of life, and to make sure that they couldn't get in, they stick an intimidating angel there with a sword somehow that's on fire, and this, this angel and the sword are able to kind of dodge and weave and make sure no one's getting by him. Unless you want to die, it'll cost you your life to get back into this garden, to get access to the tree of life. But in that picture, we have a long view of the gospel, you were meant to read that and start thinking of a Christ who would later step into that flaming sword by hanging on the cross, granting you and I salvation, which is the fruit from the tree of life. It is Jesus that does not just get us entry back into a garden, but inaugurates a kingdom and pulls us into this kingdom, much better than the garden that we came from. This grievous evil has followed us for so long, but it finds its hard stop in the person of Christ. So friend, listen, if you're a believer, you've been given a fresh opportunity to enjoy life as one who is already satisfied. Already satisfied. I mean, you live a poor life, not a lot of money. You live a great life with a lot of money, as the world sees a great life. You have a car that barely runs. You have a brand new car. It's not your ultimate satisfaction. You don't find your heart saying a little bit more all the time beckoning you like any idol does to say you're almost there, but you just need a little bit more to be totally happy because you're already totally happy. You're already ultimately satisfied. You've already found your pinnacle of contentedness and meaning. As Paul says to the Ephesian church, you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have that. If you're a believer, you have that today. You have it today. He tells Timothy, his protege, he says that God has richly provided us with everything to enjoy. You have the right to do that. Listen, if you're a believer, you also have the freedom to grow wealth. 
as fast as you can. Stack the bills high. Make as much money as you want and make that money make money. And, and be brilliant with it to the glory of God as long as you're not enslaved to it. As long as that has not become your God. As long as it's not an idol. And if you're a believer, you can quit lying to yourself that you just need a little bit more for ultimate happiness. And, and listen, just as a side note, as a Christian, as a missionary to the city around you, this is a very helpful piece of the passage to enter somebody's life. Because believe it or not, our hearts were crafted to hunger for ultimate satisfaction. Now, we're never going to find it in this world, but make no mistake, this hunt, this chase for ultimate meaning, that's in there by God's beautiful surgical hand. God made your neighbor to want and hunger and hope for ultimate satisfaction. What we do is we just look for it in the wrong place. But maybe you're not a believer. If you're a skeptic and you're searching for meaning in this brutal life under a blazing sun, you need to know a little bit more. A little bit more is always going to let you down. It's like the carrot on the end of a really big stick. You're always going to give chase. You're never going to find it. Now, your heart was made to chase it, but you're never going to find it. The things You are not one promotion away, friend. You're not. You're not one neighborhood away, one vehicle away, one child away, one marriage away. You're not. Not from ultimate satisfaction. But Christ pursues us, and he gets what he wants. So if it's meaning and purpose in this world that you're looking for, you need to know that you can only find out in the remedy to our grievous malady, the remedy to our deep sickness. It's Christ who has paved a way to a tree of life, And what he's asking from us is to repent, to alter the course of our hearts, the desires deep in us, to turn our back on sin, to grab our king with both hands, to adore our king above all the goods of the world, to foster this relationship where he is more ultimate and more ultimate. And the more ultimate and the more beautiful he gets, the darker and the uglier our sin gets and our steps move accordingly. That's what he's asking from us. So go ahead and stand with me, and we'll, we'll move into this next section of worship, which we've had to change a little bit because of COVID, but we'd hope that if you walked in, maybe you had an opportunity to grab one of these communion cups. Do we have a couple people that could grab that tray out there and wheel it in here in case somebody did not get one? Thank you. Appreciate it, Caleb. We're going to bring a, a bunch of these in here in a minute, so if you did not grab one of these little rip and sip cups... When they come in, just I'll tell you to raise your hand, and they'll bring it around and give you one of these things. Because we're going to take communion as a church, as we've been doing the last several weeks. Typically, again, if you're a guest, we, we have you do this on your own during the worship segment when all the lights are down. Because, to be honest, I'd prefer that husbands are leading their families in this. Roommates are taking it together. I love the idea of communion being taken in plurality. Um, right now, gathering in tight little pockets and dipping bread and juice is probably not the wisest thing in the world, so we're going to go this route for a little while. Um, but what I'd like to do is as we repent and as we remember who God is and we remember the gospel and the power of the gospel, that we can do this together as a church and make it a, a declaration corporately. All right, so you got one. So raise your hand if you need one of these things, and he will come around and give it to you. And then whenever he does, we'll take it together. 
quick little instruction on how to do this. It has two tops, and the clear one gets the wafer out, and the colored top, is that a color or is it just silver? Is silver a color? Okay, the other top, the second one, will release the juice. You don't want to release the juice and try to get the wafer. You'll make a mess. It'd be like you're in kindergarten all over again, and everyone will laugh at you. So take the, the, the clear one off first. This is our complicated manual on how to take communion. All right. <laughs> Listen, this is something that we invite all believers to do. If you're not a believer, what I invite you to do is consider investing your life in Christ, leaning on him. Listen, I'm fine with people saying Jesus is a crutch to me. He absolutely is. I put all of my weight on him. <laughs> I don't even know why that's supposed to be a cut down. I, I invest everything. I lean everything into him, and I'm happy to do it. As we take this, I want you to consider and remember not just a walking, talking, perfect Christ. I want you to imagine the Christ on the cross whose body is being fractured and in, in in the spoils of what he owns is being divided up and the sky is growing dark and people are bitter and he's being tested in every way. I want you to remember that as we take this. So Father, we thank you as we hold this. We do so in remembrance this is not just an empty ritual. It's a ritual that is pregnant with meaning and a spiritual reality for us. You broke your body. You stepped into that flaming sword, the grandiose cross, to grant us access to the tree of life. You did that for us. We didn't ask for it. We don't deserve it. But your grace gives us things, favors us. So, Lord, we take this bread remembering your body. And as you pull that second back and you have your juice, let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this juice. It resembles something much, much more grandiose in the blood of a perfect king. A perfect king the second Adam, who came not to just reverse everything the first Adam broke, but came to be perfectly obedient to the Father. Uh, that, that this is the blood of a king that, that also said, I'm free to enjoy the good things around me because my ultimate satisfaction is in the Father who is with me. And so, Lord, as we take this, we do so not just in remembrance of you, but in remembrance of what you have done, the life, death, and life of our salvation in Christ. So we take this juice. So what we're about to do is just pray a prayer of repentance for our church and for ourselves. This is a little bit different than what we normally do on a Sunday service. We're joining about 6,000 churches today. Tonight is Yom Kippur. We're not a Judaistic church, so it might not have a lot of connection with you. Um, but it is, it is typical for there to be a prayer of repentance. And I feel like this is a, a well-placed moment for us, given our text today. And so maybe we could pray as a church and repent as a corporate people, joining churches all over. And this is how I'm going to do this. I took a look through the churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Occasionally, Christ would say, and this I have against you. And as I read through that, I thought, man, these are things that we could be repenting for easily. It's, it's not just 
for these individual churches. It's for you and it's for me. So I would like to pray for that with you and us as a people, really give our heart to the Lord and declare things that we might not even feel in the moment. But with the trust that the Holy Spirit can come and make us feel differently. You know, you can pray that too. If you don't feel a repentance, did you know that you can ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart so that you do? Did you know that you can ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart to where you, you see your sin darker, you love the things of the world less, and that he would nurture and groom the love and the adoration you have for him, and he will do it. It's a dangerous prayer. He will do it. So, Father, we do repent as a church. I look at how you address the Ephesian church, and you said they abandoned their first love. How easy that is for us. Lord, I know for the believers in here, I know that there was this pinnacle moment where we had this first love. I remember singing and crying and being so joyful. Man, I was so reckless with abandonment. I, I was so adventurous, so excited. And then just life under the sun starts to whittle and shave some of that off moment by moment. Lord, that this first love that we have in you that has been abandoned, Father, that it would be restored. Now you tell that church to return to the things that they did in the beginning. And so I know that's the same for us, that we would return to putting you first and foremost in front of us as we wake in the morning, as we go to bed at night. Your scriptures, your word, your promises. Lord, we have as a church abandoned our first love. I as a pastor have abandoned my first love. Father, so we repent and turn and pray that your Holy Spirit would change us. I see how you speak to the church of Sardis. You tell them that they have a reputation for being alive, but are in fact dead. And Lord, I know how in the deep south we could be such a talent show, walking around, looking like we are excited about the Lord, but deep inside we are not. We are rotting. We are distracted. We are dishonest with ourselves. We are hoping for a little bit more of the things of this world still looking to get our ultimate purpose, our pinnacle and utmost meaning from this place. But Father, that your Holy Spirit would change us. That we wouldn't just have a reputation for being alive, but we would in fact be revived. And Lord, I look at how you speak to the church of Laodicea, saying that they're not hot and they're not cold. They're just worthlessly in the middle. Father, I know how easy that can be for us, especially through a season like COVID where we, our rhythms are all disrupted. How easy it is to slip into this odd place in between hot and in between cold, just kind of somewhere muddling around in the middle, realizing that this too is a warning for us. And Lord, that we would repent as a church. Gift our hearts, your Holy Spirit, to make us red hot again. Lord, what we also pray for is our country. Knowing that one man, one political party, a four-year term is not going to turn everything around like we ultimately hope it will. Sure, things can improve. Sure, things can get worse. We know that good leaders lead well. We, we know these things, but Father, we know if what we're really looking for is heaven on earth, we're not going to get it. We're not going to get it here. But Father, we have one job. And that is to enjoy you with every fiber 
of our being, and therein you be glorified, that we can make your name famous in all the nations. Father, we pray a prayer of repentance over our hearts, how we've grown cold, how we have a reputation for being alive but are not, how we've abandoned our first love, and we pray that even as a local church, Lord, that you would change our hearts, that there would be revival in not just this church but all the churches in Knoxville. Over 800 pulpits in our metro area would feel revival. Marriages would be fixed. Families would be reunited. Restitution would be paid. Reconciliation would be had. All the painful decisions that would need to be made in order to walk rightly before you would be made. And when the world sees it, that there would be an awakening. This is what we ask for. Whether we vote or not, you will do as your will sees fit. And Lord, we trust you. We trust you. So Father, we love you and we thank you. And as we move into just singing, we sing with an open heart that you would come and change the way we see you, therefore changing the way we see ourselves. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.